0: Good morning. Good morning again. Good morning. Uh, I want to share something with you that's coming up in the life of our church, and it's a big deal. Uh, on November the 3rd, we have an opportunity to, you know, here we gather in here and we reach up and then we meet in small groups and we reach in. And, and then three times a year as a congregation, we actually go out into our community and we reach out. Uh, We serve. We serve in the name of Jesus, and we serve because Jesus serves us, and we want others to know about Jesus. So we have an opportunity coming up on uh, Saturday, November the 3rd, to go out as a congregation. We need 120 to 140, 150 people to join us in these endeavors. We have a chance to serve uh, at the Shiloh House, which is a home for abused and neglected children. It's a place that's a live-in home and we'll be doing some cleaning there. We'll be hanging out with students, some of us, uh, painting in the administrative building. Uh, Governor's Governor's Ranch Elementary School also... Contacted us and asked us if we would uh, do some projects for them. They heard about what we do and they wanted us to join them. So that's a very cool thing. So we'll be at Governor's Ranch uh, doing some tasks for them as well. And then Stepping Stone, which is a community for adults with developmental disabilities, um, there's some opportunities for us to serve there as well. And we actually have a couple more things that aren't nailed down entirely yet, but we're working on them. So I would just encourage you to pray about, think about, and then actually go and sign up for one of these projects. And it's just an opportunity. Maybe you and your small group wanna do this together. Uh, Or maybe you're not in a small group and uh, when you go and you serve alongside others, you get to know at least their names and you get to know whether you wanna spend any more time with them or not, right? So, uh, it's just an opportunity to get to know some folks a little bit better in the church. Again, November 3rd, and there's where you go to sign up. Register at DeerCreekChurch.com forward slash events. Got that? Okay, good. We're looking forward to that day and praying about it. So, pray with me. Father God, we, um, we thank you for the opportunity to sing and to declare That we believe in you, Father. We believe in you, Jesus, the Son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe, Jesus, that you didn't stay dead, but you rose from the dead. And it's because of that, there really is power. Power in the things that you say. Power in the things that you did. Power that can set us free from the stuff that's broken inside us. And it's in that belief, God, that we gather to study. And so would you teach us this morning? Would you convict us where we need conviction and encourage us where we need encouragement? Would you draw us each and every one to your son Jesus? For this we ask in his name. Amen. Well, it was, uh, was wide eyed wonderment this week. Uh, drove out to Ure where we had presbytery uh, meetings taking place in Montrose, not far away. And the colors. The blue, blue air, the formation of the mountains, absolutely incredible. Wide-eyed wonderment. Wide-eyed wonderment is what I felt many years ago when I first did a wall dive in Grand Cayman Island. Oh, my goodness. It was like being suspended in outer space. It really was. Everything below just black, everything above colorful in the sun coming through the water. Wide-eyed wonderment. Wide-eyed wonderment is when you're just thoroughly fascinated with something. It just grabs your attention. You can't get enough of it. And you simply can't take it all in. You're blown away. That's wide-eyed wonderment. Wide-eyed wonderment is what the crowd felt on a hillside in Galilee nearly 2,000 years ago when they were listening to Jesus teach. Same thing. Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed, wide-eyed wonderment, at his teaching. And no wonder, no wonder. Nobody had ever talked about God's kingdom the way Jesus did. Nobody had ever made the kingdom of God so available. To so many different people, people who didn't deserve it. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount takes place in the context of wide eyed wonderment. People listening to Jesus were just blown away. A few weeks ago, we started looking at the Beatitudes. And we saw that people who are poor in spirit and people who mourn and people who were meek can actually live the good life. They can live the life that Jesus called blessed. You see, if they are living in Jesus' kingdom, if they are doing life, trusting in and holding on to Jesus, they're living the blessed life. In fact, we saw that the kingdom belongs to these kinds of people as these people reach out to and hold on to. To Jesus, the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek are actually blessed. Not because it's a good thing to be poor in spirit, not because it's a good thing to mourn, not because it's a good thing to be meek, but because when you're in that condition, poor in spirit, mourning and meek, you know you need help. You know you need Jesus. And Jesus promises that You can come into his kingdom and in his kingdom, you will be blessed regardless of your circumstances. That's his promise. Today, we're gonna look at just the fourth beatitude. The beatitude that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Friends, Jesus' statement there is profoundly significant. It's something that we absolutely need to understand. And yet, I think that significant numbers of Christians, that people that populate churches and so, struggle to grasp exactly what Jesus is driving at when he made that statement. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, I'm first struck by what this beatitude does not say. It does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after something bigger, something more important than blessedness. I don't know why this is, but it's pretty much a law of the universe that if you just seek happiness, if that's the driving force in your life, you're never going to be happy. Because anything that you try to center your life around to be happy, to make you happy, other than Jesus and his kingdom, other than God himself, you will destroy or it will destroy you. I've observed it many times. Because you see, whatever it is or whoever it is wasn't meant to have you center your life around it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. Blessedness is always a byproduct of something bigger, something more important, in this case, righteousness. But what is righteousness? That's the question. What is righteousness? This righteousness that Jesus mentions. Well, I want you to notice first that this righteousness is something that the kingdom person does not already have. This righteousness is obviously not something that they have or that they can produce. And that's what it means when it says that you hunger and you thirst for it. You don't hunger and thirst for what you already have or for something you can easily produce, manufacture. And so Jesus is talking about kingdom people hungering and thirsting for something they do not already possess. And that's not an easy concept for most of us to grasp simply because the vast majority of of us know very little about hungering and thirsting for much of anything. Truthfully, uh, there is very, very little we don't have, especially when it comes to the necessities of life, food and clothing and shelter. But Jesus says, when somebody starts to hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are blessed. They will be filled. That hunger and that thirst will be met. So we wanna understand what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's fair to say that that everyone, Jesus follower or not, all people in other words, have a general desire for righteousness. Let me explain what I mean. All of us in some way or another wrestle with, we, we struggle with this thing of being right, Being righteous, because righteousness is all about rightness, correct? Just encourage me and say yes, okay? (laughs) It's about being right. That's what righteousness is. It's about being good and knowing that you're in the good and living in the good. It's about being correct, it's about being acceptable, it's about being approved. You're righteous. It's about being judged to be right. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be righteous in that sense. For example, a person applies for a job and not just any job, but the job of a lifetime, right? That job. You want this job, you need this job. You were made for this job. And so you go to the final interview and and, uh, when that interview is all over, you wanna know the verdict. What's the verdict? Have they judged me righteous? Have they judged me acceptable? Am I the one? Have they approved you for the position? And if they did, they say, yay, the job is yours. Welcome aboard. Good to have you. Nothing feels better. Another example of this dynamic that I'm talking about, you have a hot date. Anybody remember back to hot dates? Some of you are maybe with a hot date. I don't know, but (laughs) you're out with somebody you're really attracted to. The question is, are they attracted to you, right? That's That's the big question. What will their verdict be about you? Will they find you righteous? Will they find you acceptable? Will they find you approved? And if they do, well, then they'll probably want a second date. And that's what you're hoping on that first date. Can I get a second date? This is the idea of righteousness. Being fully and completely approved, being acceptable, being right. Right in that moment, right in that circumstance, right for that person. So when a student turns in a paper or when a dating relationship or a job is on the line, the thing that makes those situations kind of tense and kind of stressful is that you're waiting for a verdict, an important verdict. You're waiting to find out whether you have been approved, whether you are acceptable. You could say whether you are righteous. And if that verdict comes in positively, wow, what feels better than that? You feel great, you feel affirmed, you've been accepted. But if that verdict is negative, well, that stinks. That feels awful. Now the Bible tells us something that psychologists have caught up to and they tell us as well, namely that every human being struggles. You might say even fights for acceptability, uh, even fights for self-acceptance. We struggle with the problem of accepting ourselves because of what we know about ourselves. More of that in a minute. We all have different standards for this too. Some feel, well, if I just succeed in my career, that will demonstrate my acceptability and develop my own righteousness. I will be acceptable, you see. That's what matters most. Others, well, they feel that if people like them, if they're popular, then they're righteous. If they're really smart, if they're really attractive, if they're really rich and powerful, well, then they're acceptable, they're righteous. Here's the thing, every human being wrestles with this problem. It's the problem of acceptability. You could say, really, it's the problem of righteousness. And here's the deal. Whatever standard we use to judge ourselves in this area of acceptability or righteousness, we struggle to live up to that very standard, the standard that we set for ourselves. And it just kills us, absolutely kills us. When those around us, those we look up to, those we want approval from, judge us to be unacceptable. That kind of rejection, it kills us, every one of us when we experience that. The Bible says that is a struggle for righteousness. And the truth about people is all people are anxious about being accepted. All people, not just some people, all people. Um, Some are overtly anxious about this. And they show signs of self-doubt and low self-esteem and various other kinds of things. Life and circumstances have led them to believe that they aren't acceptable. They lack a righteousness, if you will. Others though, are covertly anxious. You know, they show it less on the surface. They look pretty good, in fact, on the outside. But inside, I'll tell you, they fear that if the truth, the real deep down truth were known about them, boy, they too would not be... Acceptable. And we all struggle with this problem of righteousness. It's a problem of acceptance. None of us have a solution for this problem. And consequently, all of us are at times more or less stressed out about it, some more than others. And the apostle Paul tells us why. Why this is the case. He says this in Romans 3: He says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Ooh, that's a big problem. There is no one righteous, not even one. And every human being knows this at a very deep foundational level. And that's what creates this sense of insecurity in us. Now I say all of that by way of contrast, because you see, everyone who enters into Jesus' kingdom must come to a place where they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I would kind of put a caveat to that, perfect righteousness, hunger and thirst for perfect righteousness, something they know they don't have. And this means that they know they are not acceptable. They are not righteous. They know there is stuff inside of them that is broken. And what is more, they know that God knows. God knows all about them. When you enter into Jesus' kingdom, this is how you get there by becoming aware of these things. We talked about this, that this is what being poor in spirit is all about. It's that humility of spirit that recognizes who I am, that I'm broken and, and what is worse, I can't even fix myself. There is stuff in me, the Bible calls it sin, that I can't root out despite my very best efforts. And the worst thing is God knows this, God sees this, sees every little bit of it in me. And so his verdict about me, well, God's verdict about me is guilty. Guilty. I am not righteous before God. I know that about me. I know that about you. God knows this about all of us. And the thing is, God is angry about this. We don't talk about this a lot, that God is angry at my sin and even hates it. That's an appropriate word. And so here I am hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is not a good situation and I don't have it and I can't manufacture it. And God's verdict around me is guilty. The truth about me is I'm, I'm unacceptable. That's the truth about me. When I said a moment ago that God is angry at my sin, that God hates that, perhaps that offends you. That wouldn't be too unusual in our day and age, the idea that God could be angry, the idea that God could be really displeased, the idea that God could hate something, because really the most popular idea about God today, if indeed there even is a God, is that God is, you tell me, love. Yeah, God is love. And while that certainly is true, absolutely true, it's just not the whole truth. God is love, 1 John 4.8, but because God is love, let me tell you, that's precisely why he's pissed off. He's angry, he's angry. Parents know exactly what I'm talking about here. Parents, have you ever loved a child who is systematically destroying themselves? a child who is making bad decisions, doing things that are hurtful to themselves and perhaps to others. Maybe the child's getting into trouble with the law. Maybe the child is wrestling with terrible choices or addictions or um, harming relationships. What happens? Well, if you really love that child, you get angry, very angry, angry at the lies, angry at the foolish decisions, angry at the addictions, angry at everything that, that is destroying the one you love. And you wanna shake them sometimes. Say, don't you see? Don't, don't you see what this is doing to you and what this is doing to others? There's an old Anglican priest and an author. His name is E.H. Gifford. And he famously said this. He said, the more a man loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar and the drunkard and the traitor. And that's exactly right. You see, love demands anger at anything that destroys the one loved. Real love is always full of anger. It's full of anger towards evil, don't you see? And the Bible says that God is morally perfect and absolutely righteous, and he is also love, and he is therefore, too, also angry. So imagine if we can get angry at evil, how much more would a holy and a perfect God get angry at the evil he sees in us and in the world? How much more angry is he because of his perfect love? He made us. He knows what we're meant to be. He knows the purpose that he's designed for us and he sees all of that polluted by the brokenness and the sin and the evil that is in us. You see, to hunger and thirst after righteousness means you see that God is angry at your sin and the sin in the world. That's who God is. And you cannot know the blessedness of the kingdom of Jesus, not really until you get this, until what we're talking about makes sense to you. You see, if I dismiss the seriousness of my unrighteousness, my unacceptability, if I say, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as you are, you know, (laughs) you're worse. I mean, I'm way better. I don't deserve any serious punishment for the little sins that I commit. My God wouldn't be that angry with me for the little stuff that I do. If that's the way I think about my sin, then I have not hungered and thirsted for perfect righteousness. And I will not be filled. Uh, Many of the Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that they had stockpiled quite a lot of righteousness I mean, they were great law keepers. We've talked about this before. They were great rule keepers. And because of their rule keeping, because of their their arduous religious efforts, they couldn't conceive that anything they did could possibly anger God. In fact, God should be thrilled to death and they were sure he was that they were on his team. But Jesus in this beatitude is pointing out that we don't just need some more righteousness, just a little bit to top off the righteousness that we've already produced on our own. We need to hunger and thirst for perfect righteousness. And that means repenting of all of our imperfect righteousness. You do realize, of course, that the best good that you can do is pathetic good. That's the best good that you can do, pathetic good. It means good that's laced still with all kinds of self-concern and self-promotion. You know, I love it when people see me serving and loving on others. Makes me look good. Right? I feel good. They feel good about me. I feel good about me. What's not good about that? Well, the problem, what's not good about that is that's such an imperfect righteousness. It's a self-centered righteousness. You see, any real Jesus follower understands that they cannot really manufacture even an ounce of perfect righteousness. Not even an ounce. And this is something I need Jesus to give me. Perfect righteousness. This is why a Jesus follower cannot be a moralist. You know what a moralist is. A moralist is a disciplined, rigorous, very good person who in the final analysis thinks very highly of themselves and secretly wonders why, you know, everyone else is not doing as well as they are. Why isn't everyone else as moral as me? You go to a moralist with a problem and their advice will always be something like this. Work harder, suck it up. Get some accountability. You're not trying hard enough. You just need to pull yourself together. And the subtext is like I do. It's always like I do. A Jesus follower, on the other hand, is different. He or she has a very high regard for the truth. They will not excuse the brokenness and the sin that is in them or in the world for that matter. And they have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, perfect righteousness. And yet when assessing themselves, if they're being honest, you know, they are poor in spirit, they're humble. They mourn over the brokenness they see in themselves and elsewhere. They are meek. They're not judging others. They're looking at themselves and they see their own personal problems, their own personal struggles with sin. And they also see their propensity to be proud of their goodness. And so they come to understand that they need to repent of their sins and their prideful goodness. They don't just need to repent of the bad things they do, they need to repent of the good things they do because even in that there's sin. This is exactly what the apostle Paul uh, talked about when he wrote to the church at uh, Philippi. There was some confusion there growing about the gospel and about righteousness. And about acceptability and so. What, what exactly makes a person acceptable to God? And the apostle Paul writes these words. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that is confidence in the things that we accomplish and so I have more, Paul says. He's not shy, is he? circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, meaning I'm a really great law keeper, rule keeper, you see. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness and keeping all the rules, faultless, he says. But whatever was to my profit, the things I thought that made me righteous, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, all that stuff I thought recommended me and made me acceptable, I've lost it all, don't want it. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is an imperfect righteousness, a very imperfect righteousness, that comes from the law, you see, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. There, Paul says it. Really, that's all we needed to read this morning. That's all we needed to hear is what Paul writes. A moralist on the other hand says, you know, I repent of my sins when I commit one, uh, but look at all the good I do. Look at how often I go to church. Look at how faithful I am to my spouse. Look at how successful I am at business. And a Jesus follower says, you know, that's all true about me, but I'm very prideful about that. So I repent of that too. I see that those things are the things I sometimes think make me acceptable, but they don't. Only one thing makes me acceptable. Only one thing gives me the perfect righteousness I really need, and that is Jesus. That is Jesus. So I will rely on him alone. That's what Paul is saying. That attitude right there is the chief difference between a moralist and a Jesus follower. This is the central truth of the Christian faith, this thing we call the gospel. The essence of Christianity is that Jesus came and substituted himself on the cross for me. He did everything I needed him to do. He paid for it. My sins, all of them. He gave me His perfect record. All this happened when I transferred my trust from myself onto Jesus. At that moment, I received a new verdict, if you will, a new verdict from God. God says now about me, if you can imagine, God says about me, This is my beloved child in whom I am totally, thoroughly well pleased. And God's new verdict. Well, when we receive God's new verdict, it should change everything. Sometimes we forget about his verdict regarding us, but it should change everything. Now, when I'm on a date, I mean, I don't date anymore, I've got a wife, but you know, now when I'm on a date, I'm a new person on that date. When I'm applying for a job, I'm a new person applying for that job. I have the verdict of my maker, a brand new identity given to me. Yes, negative, negative. Verdicts suck. He, she doesn't wanna date me. That would make me feel bad. They don't wanna hire me. That would make me feel bad. But those are now just little verdicts. Those verdicts don't destroy me any longer because I am no longer building my own righteousness, you see. Yes, this or that person may not judge me righteous. They may not judge me acceptable, but whose verdict really counts? That's a loaded question. All too often, the verdict of God regarding us doesn't count enough in our lives. And we let other verdicts count more. We shouldn't. Whose verdict really counts? God says, if you're trusting in and believing in Jesus, God says about you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And guess what? That verdict is the only verdict that will last. So what the heck? I'll try my best with this girl, this guy on this date, right? I'll do my best at the interview. I'll do the best I can with this sermon. If I'm not accepted, I'll be disappointed, but that's not my life. My life is not wrapped up in those things. My life is found in Jesus Christ. And so if I do succeed, my business is wildly successful. I get the girl, I marry the guy, whatever. My sermons are unbelievably good. Well, again, what the heck? That is not my righteousness. And so I will not be smug or proud. Those things are great, but they do not define me. Nor do they make me righteous, nor do they make me acceptable. Do you see how when you come to that place, shame is gone. Pride is gone. I am who I am. You are who you are because of Jesus. There's a lady named Becky Pippert, some of you have heard of her. She wrote a book many years ago and it's a really good book. It's still out there, it's called Hope Has Its Reasons. And after uh, speaking at a conference, she shares a story about a young woman who came up to her and wanted to talk and wanted to share her story. And this woman had been married recently, fairly recently. Uh, she was a member of a conservative uh, evangelical church and so, and she was marrying a handsome young man. They were both leaders in the church and, and uh, doing great things there, but apparently about six months uh, before the wedding, she finds out that she's pregnant, of course, by her fiancé, and they realized what this was going to mean. It would become apparent to everybody that what they were preaching publicly, they weren't practicing privately. And they realized the scandal and the problems that this was gonna cause and so they decided that she would have an abortion and that's what they did and she was very broken up about this and she was sharing all this with Becky Pippert and uh, that she shared with her that as she was walking down the the aisle on the day of her wedding everybody's smiling she of course is beautiful and She said the only voice that she could hear was the voice of the accuser with every step that she took down the aisle, you are a murderer. She had taken the life of her unborn child simply because she was too afraid to show people who she really was. To save face, in her words, she murdered her unborn baby. And she told Becky Pippert that she said, I know who I am, you see. I knew who I was when I was walking down the aisle. And what is more, God knows who I am. And she shared that she had confessed it 10 times thousand times this sin to God and ask for forgiveness but she had become obsessed with this in her life and she was depressed around this and she was asking Becky Pepper the question how could God ever forgive me for doing something like this and even if he can how could I ever forgive myself knowing who I really am and Becky Pepper's response was really insightful She said, my dear young woman, Jesus came and died for all our sins, the sins of the religious, as well as the non-religious, the sins of the perpetrators, as well as the victims, the sins of the moral and the immoral. And then she said, we are all responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. You were already a murderer long before you took the life of your unborn baby. You had already murdered Jesus. And Jesus had paid for that sin and all your other sins long ago on the cross. Do you get that? Do you get that about yourself? That is the truth about all of us. We are murderers, forgiven murderers, who if you have faith in Jesus, you have been given a perfect righteousness. One you cannot manufacture, one you cannot produce. In Jesus, we are given every thing we need. Full acceptability, imagine full acceptability, even though we're unacceptable. Thank you, Jesus. Understand that's what this meal is about. When these trays come by and you take a piece of bread or you take the cup, you are celebrating. We are celebrating together the grace that is produced in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. it's It's a life and a death and a resurrection that declares to us that we're acceptable. Not for what we do. because of who we trust in. This morning, I would just strongly encourage you. If you're here this morning, you probably didn't come thinking, oh, they'll be taking communion. But if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, I I hope you can perceive through some of the things that we've shared and sung and prayed and said, how much Jesus loves you. I hope you perceive that. He perceives or he, he, He feels that way about you. He loves you in spite of knowing everything about you. He wants to make you acceptable to the heavenly father in spite of the fact that there's really nothing acceptable in you or me. And I would encourage, I would challenge you to put your faith in Jesus and your trust in Jesus and then partake of this meal with us. The only right way to partake of this meal is by faith. All of us who trust in Jesus this morning, when we uh, receive the bread and we take it and we're holding that and we're about to partake, we're, we're actually saying, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I receive his righteousness for me. And I hold on to the fact that I am acceptable to God because of Jesus. My sins are forgiven in him. And if that's where you are this morning in terms of your faith, then we invite you to partake with us. If that's not where you are, then I would just encourage you to pass that plate on to the person seated next to you and and pray, contemplate, ask God to make himself real to you. Ask him for greater clarity and greater understanding. Parents with your children, same thing. If you have children here with you and you're going to let them partake, it's very, very important that you know that they know who Jesus is and what's signified here in this sacramental meal. When we partake of this bread and this juice, we are just acknowledging the efficacy, the power, the working of Jesus Christ on the cross that that we have the things that are promised to us in the gospel. They belong to us by faith. And our spirits, our souls are fed. I don't know exactly how, um, there have been a couple dozen, oh, I'm sorry, maybe 200,000 books written on that subject. <laughs> Nobody really understands how the grace is exactly communicated to us, except that it is through faith and the Spirit of God and the Word of God at work, and our souls are fed and nourished. That's why we need this meal. Pray with me. As we pray, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. Um, Jesus in the upper room took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you for remission of sins. Pray with me. Father, we recognize that what we have on this table, we have the elements of bread and the elements of juice. And we recognize that these things remind us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And we also acknowledge by faith how desperately, how much we need Jesus. And we come to these elements and partake of these elements with faith and with trust in the work of Jesus. Feed us, spiritually feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.